One, two, three, four. This is David's microphone. Should we have him go to over there? Do you have like, some distortion in your voice? Do I have some distortion in my yeah, voice? Have you been to the doctor lately? Did they check your distortion level? Yeah, they did. My distortion level is a minus nine megahertz. Minus nine? Megahertz, though. Megahertz. Yeah. He said, what about this over here? I said, it megahertz. Hey guys, on a Monday, it's Studio BZ. David Wade is joining me here. Hi, David. How are you, Paula? How was the weekend? Weekend was too fast as always, but uh, I'm very excited about this whole podcast situation. Oh. Although I have to say, I was feeling somewhat special being invited <laughs> until Jonathan Case, our producer, moments ago said, Yeah, you know, it's very casual. It's yeah. whoever's around. It's whoever we whoever can just is grab around. That's out what of the I hallway. am. David, you're like my white whale. I've been, I've been trying to get you on here since. Actually, five years ago. Do you remember yeah, this? Five years ago. You've been we, discussing podcasts? I remember I, I was 22, but I go wanted, ahead. Yeah, 22 years old, David Wade. Yep. I came and I said, let's do a podcast. And you said, mm. no. And I said, no one will ever <laughs> listen a to podcast? a podcast. The future is CDs <laughs> and albums. And you said, no. And I said, I'm going back to listen to my Zoom. And I walked away. David I remember. said, why would we ever want to discourage people from only seeing me at 6 and 11? That's right. Don't send them to a podcast. That's right. What are you thinking, Jonathan? Well, it took me five years, but you're finally here. All right. So. Well, I'm here, and I'm going to so, come back if you. I like so, it. So David Wade is here, <laughs> and uh, he did sleep a little, despite having two boys under five. I so did. he did have a good weekend. All right. So here are some of the things we were going to talk about. Did you watch the Oscars last oh, night? Oh, I did. The whole thing? I watched until about 10 minutes left. Okay. And, and then, then I was just too tired. <laughs> yeah, just too tired. And I kind of had a – I felt like I had a sense of – who was going to win? Where it was going? Although I was surprised by the movie of the year or the yeah. best picture. Yeah. We can talk about yeah, that though. Won. All right, so we're going to talk about are the Oscars still so white, and what about all of the issues they were talking about? Diversity, Me Too. Do they in fact have a social responsibility, or is it just a business? After all, they're just producing movies, and they just want people to buy tickets. And do they actually have? Social responsibilities. We're going to talk about that. John Keller interviewed Congressman Mike Capuano to talk to him about his biggest complaint about Congress, which is that nothing ever gets done and now things are even worse than ever before. And then we did a really fun interview with Bill Shields about how he's the new Shelby Scott, <laughs> that he's the one always out in the storm. And I know he's one of your favorites. And he is. And he's uh, he always acts a little wild during the storms, too, which I like. It's like Bill Unfiltered. The unexpected is not knowing what's going to to be here, but a little nervous too, because a few years ago, people were saying that Oscars were so white. And since then, some real progress has been made. Mm -hmm. But we, when we came yeah. out together, we know some of you were thinking, are the Oscars too black now? All right, so we've just come from watching the 90th Academy Awards, the Oscars. What was your initial reaction, first of all, overall? I think overall... I thought they were better than last year as far as – last year was just – Sorry, it's Brooke. No it's problem. It's Brooke. Brooke comes yeah. in, too. Thanks, Brooke. Just, dis <laughs> just ignore the on-air um, light outside. No, that's my job. David Wade <laughs> is speaking. If you oh, could take your seat yes, and not I'm like, interrupt. I'm like E.F. Hutton for all our old people who are listening. <laughs> I have no idea who that is. I know. That's because you're young. You're a millennial. That's why we have a millennial here. E.F. Hutton's for us old people. So I think last year it was from minute one to the final minute. Uh, nothing but a back and forth with the president. Mm -hmm. And 
I usually think that the Oscars is a byproduct of what is ever happening in the world for that previous year, but it was a lot last year. It was a lot of politics, and the movies almost became sort of the backseat. This year was slightly better, and you asked a couple moments ago if they have a social responsibility or if this is just a business. They definitely have a social responsibility, but when I'm watching the Oscars, I want to learn a little bit more about the movies that I didn't see. I want to learn a little bit more about the actors and actresses who I didn't get to watch perform. And when every single person up there is just trying to have their little clip be the one that represents social justice, it almost feels like it has become less of a contest about which film is best and which actress is best and more of a contest of who's going to be the most uh, socially aware person up there. So it gets a little old. It's the only industry where we all get to see, well, I mean, I guess ours in a minor way is similar where people see us do our work, right? So you get to see people in the movie industry. There it is. That's their work. And so people are fascinated by what is sound mixing or sound editing. I'm still unclear really on what a cinematographer does. But all of those things, you're right. People want to know about this industry they're so fascinated about. And yet they want to see the dress on the red carpet and they want to see, but to be inundated with all of these messages throughout the night. Um, There was a, uh, Vulture did a um, interview with some of the Academy voters and they asked them about the movies themselves. And the interviewer was saying, I had multiple conversations with longtime Academy members who were like, that was not an Oscar film. Honestly, a few of them had not even seen them, and they were saying this. So do you think we've gotten to the point, too, where now there are so many films nominated, people aren't even seeing them. Your average American watching hasn't seen them all. Now the Academy voters seem to have changed Well, they're turning their nose up, which which is very Oscar anyway. It used to be four or five movies nominated. I think it it was five. Last night, I believe there were nine. And the reason why they had to do that was because people were saying, I didn't see that movie about the, you know, that was in uh, one theater in France for two months, six months ago. It has to be the movies that people have actually seen. Mm -hmm. And it's very Oscars to turn up your nose and say, well, that was not really Oscar worthy. Yeah. You know, the movie that won is about a woman who ends up having <laughs> sexual relations with a fish, with a fish. who looks like they just walked off a set at Disney World. <laughs> My four-year-old son said, Daddy, what is that? Because it looked like something from Nick Jr. It now, was pretty comical. I should admit I haven't seen the film because somebody told me that I would hate it. Yeah. Uh, but I saw many of the other films. <laughs> yeah. And to get back to the original question, I do think it's a good thing that they've expanded the amount mm-hmm. of movies that are in for Best Picture. Yeah. Because you're more likely to watch the show and more likely to feel invested in the show if you've actually seen a couple of them and you might be pulling for one. So that's typical people turning up their nose and saying, well, that doesn't seem like an Academy Award uh, worthy film. I think that that's pretty typical. Here's Because I agree with you. I actually think it's probably a good thing because of the obscurity of some of the films. And also it it seems to have reduced the chances of a sweep. Like you could see last night, the acting really in three billboards was amazing. And those two won the acting award. 
Award. I think The Shape of Water won Best Picture because visually it was amazing. And to direct something that looked so original and unlike anything you've ever seen, that is kind of a director's achievement. And then the the screenwriting for Get Out won because that was such an original story. So maybe this is working now the way it's supposed to and you don't have the nine Oscars for, you know, Gone with the Wind or whatever it was. It used to be one movie took home everything. But here's what's not working. It's not as interesting for the person at home. Yeah. And you can either use the number, you know, ratings down 16% and chalk it up to, well, there's just too many other things going on in the world. People can be on Netflix. People can be on their phone. People are just too busy because at the end of the day, most things, the Super Bowl, you know, things that people used to watch just 100%, a lot of those things, their ratings are down. In this case, though, to get back to the socially mm-hmm. aware portion of what we were talking about, I do think that people at home are starting to feel like all you're doing is preaching to me for three and a half hours, and it gets a little bit old because, and this is the one point I'll make, most of the things that the actors actors and actresses were talking about last night, you know, why aren't there more women, why aren't there more African Americans, all of these people are signing on to do movies knowing who the cast is. Right. And they're not making the stand when they sign on well, to do the movie. this is why Frances McDormand She talked about the, the diversity writer. The diversity writer at the end of her speech. They're all signing up for these movies to get their paycheck and to get their face on film. And then later on talking about it would have been nice if there were some female directors. How about well, this going is and thing. seeking out the movie right. with the female director? Now, if you're a star and you sign on and you have an inclusion writer, there I think it is, it's yep. called, you're going to say, I'm not doing this picture unless there is a certain number of women, minorities, what you know, what have you, in terms of the employment on the set. So, I mean, that that is where people are going to be able to wield some power. But let's see if they do that, because it's do. much easier it's to do the movie, collect your paycheck, and then put on a fancy gown and make your comment from the stage than it is to actually turn down a movie because you don't think it was diverse enough or was gender balanced enough. The other thing, too, that I thought was interesting was that I thought the Harvey Weinstein thing would play bigger than it did last night. But, like, here's another in this article, another interview with an Academy voter who says... When I first saw The Disaster Artist, that's the James Franco movie, that little movie that he made, I felt he was very talented. But after all those allegations came out in the press, only allegations, he definitely fell from grace with me. I cannot allow somebody to walk away with an award when they're not a good person. One of the critiques and one of the criticisms of Hollywood, though, is that they don't always take on their own. And while over the past six months, people have taken on Harvey Weinstein in different articles uh, and such... Last night, very few people made cracks about it. And it's yeah. because he was in their midst and a lot of them had yeah. something to do with it. It was uncomfortable. Roman Polanski, people Roman stand Polanski. up when Woody he gets Allen. awards. Woody Allen. But, yeah. but they'll be very quick to say something about someone in Washington. They'll make that crack, but they won't make the crack about the person who was in their midst. It hit and very I think close that's to where home. The, that's where the hypocrisy of Hollywood sometimes stands out. And that's what turns people off. Give me three hours... And by the way, that's it. And don't do something where you're going to pretend to give away a jet ski. Just tell everyone you can say something about your movie and you can thank your wife or your husband or your partner. But 
naming 50 people. It doesn't work. Cut it down to three hours. Show me lots of highlights of movies. Make it funny. Yeah. You know, the, the Tiffany, what's Tiffany's Tiffany Haddish. Tiffany Haddish. And Maya Rudolph. They were hysterical. They were very, very They funny. were lighthearted. And you know what? It's they true. weren't taking themselves too seriously, which is yeah. what most of them do. All right, here's an interesting thing that Jonathan brought up. You and I have both judged Emmy Awards mm-hmm. for news people. And it, it is interesting to think about, you know, those are tough decisions when you're watching someone, you know, the five submissions for best writing or breaking news. Or it, when you sit and you watch each one, what goes through your mind? Uh, I just look for what moves me. Yeah, which you know, one what did you watch out? that said, hey, that one, that one sticks out from the rest? Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, when I picture the judges for the Academy Awards, so it's the, uh, is it, the, it's from the Academy of... The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and yeah, Sciences. Yeah, so it's not like the uh, the foreign press. They do right, the Golden right, Globes, that's right? Golden Globes. Yeah. I, I just can't even imagine how insufferable these people are. <laughs> I can't even imagine. You know what they should spend more time talking about? Making better movies. Yes. Because... A lot of the movies just stink. Well, and then, because they put the money into them, they want to make them last two and a half right. hours. Or they're just superhero movies they know they're going to sell in China yes. into the global market. I can go on Netflix and, and watch something average person wants. better than almost anything that was nominated. And I can do that on a nightly basis. Yeah. I mean, there are things on Netflix, shows well, that are being where the made, talent is yeah, going. they're just plain better. So make you, better movies. Yeah. Make better just movies. Just be better. You know? Hire people with talent, no matter who they are. That's right. What they look like or what gender they are. But I think you're right. They, remember when it was embarrassing for a movie star to appear on television? They would yeah. never yeah, not be on a TV show. And now everybody's Remember when it was embarrassing for a TV person to be on a podcast? <laughs> I know. And look at you now. Look. <laughs> it's the best. Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. We're talking with Congressman Mike Capuano, who next year will mark his 20th year as the representative of the 7th Congressional District of Massachusetts. Congressman, how is serving in Congress most notably different now? The most important thing that I see is not the difference of opinion. There have always been there on important issues. Um, it is there are many more people serving in the House and the Senate, but particularly the House, that have gotten elected on the promise of not compromising. The, the concept of compromise on some places has become a swear word. And I think that's it is a recipe for disaster. And I think that's exactly why we're not getting anything done. Um, it's. It's not about the right and left. It is about the right and left, but it's those issues have always been there. People have always argued about whether we should have health care and if so, how much and all the other things. But you have to be willing to compromise. Knowing, look, I, I have very strong, deep opinions about many issues, um, but I'm not elected emperor. I'm elected a member of the House. If I want to get anything done, I have to compromise. And I don't think that's a bad thing as long as you tell people, this is what I wanted, this is what I could get. So what happened to the idea of compromise? Is it a generational thing? I don't know what it is. It, we don't get that too much up here, to be perfectly honest, in Massachusetts. It, it seems to be happening in other, other places of the country. You'll have to ask the voters in those districts as to, I guess they're angry, and um, I guess they think that they've elected people that said they would do something and then couldn't get it done and somehow want to punish them. 
but I actually, I don't know what it is. I think it's a disconnect between the way real life is because everybody compromises. They compromise in their personal life. They compromise in their professional life. I've been married 43 years. I have, my wife and I compromise every day. Uh, I don't know anybody who gets everything they want in any business, and yet somehow in politics you're supposed to be able to get everything you want. That's It's unrealistic, and I think, again, we're fortunate in Massachusetts. Most people get it. Um, I can't speak for the rest of them. I mean, we are in an era, although there have been, there's been plenty of rough-and-tumble discourse throughout American political history, some of the stuff that went on in the era of the Pulitzer Papers or uh, in the 19th century would, would make us blush today. Uh, but is that what more and more of today's voters want in the era of the loud talk radio and nasty discourse online? Is that what people expect now? It's hard to tell. I mean, obviously, information is much more readily accessible, and, and, and there are many more voices providing that information. I think there are, there are and a lot of people that provide that information are not necessarily reliable media people. They, they're opinion makers, and they, they express their opinion more than express facts. And, what, and right now, in today's world, it is easy to turn the station or get a new website or do whatever you need to do to hear news that you want to hear from your own end of the political spectrum as opposed to hear a broader discussion about anything. I don't know that that's the cause. I kind of leave those things to sociologists to figure out, but I know that there's a problem. How do you maintain a broad range of understanding of what's happening? What do you read or watch on a daily basis? I'm one of those people I try to do a lot. I, I, I read a lot of papers. I don't read every word of every paper. I, I, I watch a lot of TV stations. I'll read several blogs. And again, when I say read, it really is more like browse and read the issues that are the, the articles that are of interest to me or I need to read. Uh, that includes professional magazines as well. I'll read The Economist once in a while. You know, again, not cover to cover, but I'll find an article that I need to read and I'll read it. Um, Anyhow, so, the, so I, I, I don't think that's unusual. I think it's pretty typical today that most people get their information from multiple sources. Do you read any conservative journals? I, I, I watch Fox News on occasion. Okay. Uh, but uh, I usually get angry at the station <laughs> relatively quickly. And the answer is, yeah, I, I do. Uh, again, try to stay away from the opinion pieces as much as I, I read some of the op-eds in the, in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times from the more conservative writers. But I'm not interested in being yelled at. I am interested in thoughtful conversation from a different viewpoint. Um, all that being said, I think that's where most people get it. And not everybody, though. And I think there aren't enough people who understand the responsibilities that we have as, as a democratic society. I think you have a responsibility to have some understanding of the issues in front of you and have a responsibility to go out and make sure that you vote and vote in your own interest. Not out of anger, but out of intelligence. Do you think we ought to be teaching that in the public schools? Yeah, I do. I've always thought that we're a little weak on, on civics lessons. I think civics has taken a backseat to, to a lot of things. I think it's a real shortcoming. Some people talk about teaching media literacy now, understanding the difference between real news and fake news. News. Well, Do you like that, that idea? Yeah, I would argue that should be part of civics. That should yeah. be part of it. it was, yeah. Where did you get the information and what's the source? And there is no neutral people in the world. That's why I always laugh. Let's get somebody who's neutral. There is nobody who's neutral. But people sometimes are better at putting their own personalities or personal opinions aside than others. But they're still on a blank slate. So, yeah, I would love that. I, I think the lack of civics education and the lack of, lack of financial literacy are the two things that are missing, and uh, if not missing, at least minimized in public education today. Well, speak 
speaking of contentious issues, Howard Dean, the former Vermont governor and head of the Democratic National Committee, said recently he would withhold support from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee if they follow through on that committee chairman's promise not to apply an abortion rights litmus test to candidates they back. Now, you said in an interview that if being a Democrat was a, quote, one-issue matter, you would probably get kicked out of the party yourself. What do you mean by that? Um, look, I, I don't even know what the, quote, Democratic Party believes in on every issue. I don't check in with them. You don't know um, the platform in your back pocket? I, I, I've never read the Democratic platform. <laughs> uh, Democratic issues are decided by Democratic voters, yeah. not by party elites. And I happen to be a party elite at the moment by some people's measure. So therefore, for me, uh, look, I mean, Howard Dean is entitled to his opinion. I, I don't disrespect him. I don't agree with him. Uh, I, I have as strong a record on, on pro-choice matters as anybody in the history of Congress, and I'm proud of it. Um, at the same time, I don't hate or disrespect people who are pro-life as long as they don't hate. If, even if they hate me, I don't hate them. You know, and I... Again, here, I think the voters wouldn't accept a pro-life voter. But if you go to Mississippi, and if that were the, if, if you had a candidate who was a, maybe a pro-gun and maybe a pro-life person, and yet they were with us on, on housing and they were with us on tax policy. You'll take that. If, if that's the best I can get, of course I will. Yeah. I, I, I am not a hundred percenter. I'm a, I'm a, what's the most that I can get? And Mississippi is not Cambridge. Well, who's got the upper hand in your party right now? The Mike Capuanos or the Howard Deans? I don't think it matters. I think what matters is the voters of the specific district has the uh, have the upper hand, not the party elite and not not the elected officials. I think I've always thought that it's the voters, but they have a responsibility to exercise it. So that and that includes money. If somebody doesn't want to donate to a candidate because they don't hit their ten litmus issues, that's their prerogative. But that doesn't mean that they're you know that that the whole system should walk away from that candidate because a handful of people. Uh, are upset about one issue. It's not. I mean, we're talking abortion here, but that's true about the environmental issues. It's true about economic policy. People have differences of opinion, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. The question is, what's your general philosophy of life? And and you know, yeah, you got to be on the same page of at least a few of those issues, but you don't have to be on the exact same page on every single issue. And if you do, I think that's a recipe for a disaster in any party. It'll end up in a party of one. You've objected strongly to efforts to roll back Obama-era rules that limit what the big tech companies can do with the customer data they harvest. So with a handful of tech giants, Amazon, Google, Apple among them, now completely dominating the tech markets and expanding into retail and other economic sectors, do you support the call in some quarters to pursue a new wave of antitrust litigation to rein in their power? I am not an antitrust expert. The answer is that I think the antitrust has to always be there because the nature of business, particularly big business, is to create a monopoly. And if not a monopoly, an oligopoly made up of several companies who agree with each other, well, I'm not going to really compete against you. We'll, we'll all raise our prices and therefore none of us get hurt. And it's a, that is a monopoly, but it's a different type of one. So the, I, I think government and society has to be aware of it. It's, it's human nature. Who wouldn't want an unregulated monopoly in any business? Wouldn't you want to be the only TV station in New England? That would be one wonderful. You'd love it. It wouldn't be so good for society, but it's 
I don't blame you for wanting it, mm-hmm. but I would blame us for sitting idly by while that happened. And it would be the same thing with technology or anything else. Competition is the basis of a free and successful economy. Um, and it, it's hard to measure sometimes, but therefore five companies, that's probably sufficient co- uh, uh, competition as long as they're really competing. If they get together in a small room with the five of them and say, oh, let's have a big cigar and cut this pie up, that's a different story. So I'm very much in favor of a continuous um, strength in antitrust concerns. No human being is capable of keeping themselves back. You know, human greed is a, na- is a thing we all have. If they find a dollar on the table that they can have, they're going to grab it. And I don't blame them. I blame us if we let them do it. Is there careful thought and planning being devoted to this topic in no, Washington? Not in my opinion. Not at all. That's about one of the things I'm trying to do on the driverless cars, on the technology thing. I think it's starting to become a little bit more, uh, a little clearer. Um, but for the sake of discussion, we, we have cable companies. Again, I don't blame them. But cable companies are an oligopoly. There is no real competition amongst cable companies. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing them. I don't mean to pick on them. Uh, and if I were the head of a cable company, I would want an unregulated monopoly, and I would consider myself a good person nonetheless. Um, so I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't like demonizing people for doing things that are natural, but that's not good for society. We Competition is what keeps things working. Competition is what keeps prices reasonable. Competition is what improves things. So when you get you know, fat dumb and lazy you know, because you don't have to be fast and quick, uh, that's not good for anybody. Like the judge said in Animal House, fat dumb and lazy is no way to go through life. It's true. We know most of us try to do that. <laughs> Congressman Capuano, thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. John Keller talking to Mike Capuano about the polarization in Washington uh, is fascinating since we have a single party delegation from Massachusetts, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so there's an interesting Brown study because I think now everybody loves to blame the internet for everything. Of course. And so their study on political polarization uh, is headlined Don't Blame the Web. Um, their findings don't rule out the internet's played some role in the polarization, but that they think some common narratives link polarization to online news and social media, but age was the greatest predictor of use, and that they actually think that the 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 age divide, that those broader, deeper differences have more of an impact. And there's another study from, where is Pacific Standard out of? Uh, that's citing a study from the University so, of Limerick. Oh, this is Limerick is yes. in place? Ireland. Yeah. Wow. Oh. This is a real the, sorry. All the lessons, <laughs> all the lessons are done in Limericks. <laughs> there once was yes. a man from Washington. Oh, I like how you uh, switched. Good job switching that up. Didn't know where we were going uh, there for a moment. Um, the researchers here say our absolute added absolutist attitudes are found in our increasing tendency to live in political and cultural cocoons. This, the quote-unquote bubble that was talked about so much during the election. Disillusionment prompts people to double down on their pre-existing belief systems, leading them to endorse more extreme views. So which do you think it is? Well, here's what I think. think. age, the internet, disillusionment? I think it's all 100% completely on the politicians because I do think that now more than ever if you're on Facebook or if you're on Twitter you will see just everything to the extreme no one is down the middle no one can say well I see that but I can see that so so 
it's easy for the politicians to say, well, people nowadays, uh, they're so polarized. No, I would say it's the politicians who are polarized. I would say it's the the congressmen, the congresswomen, the senators who could say to their constituents, hey, listen, when I'm down in Washington, I need to be able to work with both sides. So we're not always going to get our way on things. Sometimes we're going to have to compromise. And if they did that, the voters might say, yeah, no, I can see that. We're going to have to give up a little yeah, something here. I could here. have a little respect for that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to give up a little something here, but let's really try to get this. The, co- the, the people in Washington, they're only battling for their one side. And that's what happens with the voters. So the voters think everything has to be all or nothing. It's true. And, and it's so easy for the people in power to blame other people. This isn't anything new. No. It's not no, since not. November of 2016 that they've been polarized. They've been polarized Civil War pretty polarized. Forever. <laughs> A decade, right? I made the point last yeah. week that the teenagers in Parkland, Florida, mm-hmm. are getting things done. They're speaking passionately about gun control, gun reform, however you want to say it. Businesses like Dick's Sporting Goods are making impassioned moves to try to fit what they believe. Where are the people in Washington? When was the last time you turned on the news and saw a clip from the Senate floor of two people going at it? One person could be pro-guns, one could be anti. When was the last time you saw any passion from any of them? Instead, they hold that passion for their little 15-second spot on CNN. They're not working. They're not getting anything done. And you know what? Because... Fundraising is the mother's milk of politics. It's all about the money. Every member of Congress has to be elected every two years. So after about four months in office, they've got to start fundraising for the next Well, what cycle, about the senators? They're right? every six years. Senators they have too. a little bit of time. But I think you talk about these kids in Parkland, and you can see they sort of have this very wide-eyed, innocent look on their faces, looking at the cameras on CNN saying, why aren't you doing something? And to be perfectly honest, the Second Amendment is a great fundraiser for the DN for the RNC, and the NRA is a great fundraiser for the DNC, and the checks keep rolling in. And it's all about the money and the fact that those people in Washington used to have to be there. They used to have to hang out with each other all the time. And so you ended up with relationships like Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy or Tip O'Neill and Reagan. Now they're all in their jet by Thursday night back to the district to go have a fundraiser on the weekend and come back on Monday morning. These people don't even know each other. They don't ha- they don't build relationships. So I think what it really, in essence, is, is not that Americans are so polarized, but they They have not created a community of leaders among themselves. You know what? I'm not going to pretend like we don't have something to do with that. I think that the level of discourse in this country is it's not at a good spot. And I'm sure that the media is a big part of it. I like to blame the cable news stations since I don't work at one of them. Right. (laughs) Um, But it's almost impossible to turn on a cable news program in which one of them hasn't already picked a political side. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no cable channel that you can turn on and go, oh, look, they're going to give me a little bit of this side. They're going to give me a little bit of that side. Those days are gone. Yeah, absolutely. I I also do think it is interesting. There was this, you know... um, uh, a book called Coming Apart that came out uh, between five and ten years ago by Charles Murray, who's a social scientist and has had some controversy in the past. But with this book, <clears throat> his point was uh, years ago, let's say when my parents, who were like World War II generation people, were raising their kids in your little town, everyone 
from somebody who was the CEO of a company or a professional, like a lawyer and a laborer, um, went to the same church on Sunday, went and had lunch at the same Howard Johnson's. Their kids all went to the same public school down the street, and they had social interactions with each other. And one of the interesting phenomena that's happened over time, and I think it has to do with our love of branding these days, is now those people don't interact with each other. The CEO or the lawyer or whatever is not going to the same places, or they belong to private clubs, or, you know, they're not engaging in the same activities even with their fellow Americans. And so people don't feel like they know each other. Can it's I say something about thesis. that though? Because, mm. gosh, this podcast system, I'm not sure about it because it really puts me in a place where because there's no camera pointing at me, I, I end up saying <laughs> things. Going that, off. That's I end right. up saying things that okay. this is my point. And I hear about yeah. this a lot on Twitter and Facebook and comments that are made about the newscast. There's this romanticizing of the way things used to be. And you're probably right. Yeah. Back in those days, it was small town living. Everyone more, went the same It was more places. face-to-face living. Right. It was more, you know, I'm not going to talk to you on Facebook. I'm going to talk to you at the yes. deli. That said... People were all talking face to face, and people were be de- being discriminated against left and true. right. Absolutely, so you true. had this face to face society in which face to face we're saying nice things, but behind your back, I don't want to eat at the same restaurant as you. I don't want you eat, you using the same bathroom as me. So there's always this romanticizing of the previous generation, and I feel like that raised its ugly head again in the past couple of weeks. Where I have these people, I have some friends who you know I'll get a, uh, a text from them. You know, oh boy, all of a sudden these kids down in Florida, they know everything. Millennials, they know everything. Boy, every generation thinks that the new up-and-coming generation are are a bunch of idiots. Right. That's how the world has always been. And guess what? They're not. They're not. You know, oh, well, what does this 18-year-old know? Well, back in the 1940s, (laughs) an 18-year-old went out and saved our world. (laughs) It's true. So 18-year-olds have always been pretty good. We already have wind gusts over 40 miles per hour here in Situate, and this is just the beginning. The wind gusts have been knocking me around over the last couple Those hours. Those utility poles came crashing down. I don't know if you can see on the other side of this island of grass. It's still underwater. There's about a foot of water over there. There are some power lines. I'm going to hold on here. <laughs> Two utility poles down, as well as this huge tree. Look at the root structure exposed. Uh, to just give you a perspective, I can barely... So it's tough for uh, me to hear anything, even my own voice. 25 in Boston, where the wind is picking up. Back to you. Behind every one of those people you saw on TV today, there's a, a photographer, usually a truck tech as well, all of them soaking wet, all of them trying to get warm. Now, we thank all of them for their yeah. hard work today. Bill Field. Hi, Bill. It's Paula. Hey, Paula. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Do you have a couple of minutes to talk to us for the podcast? I do, yeah. Good, 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 good. How's the Sagamore Bridge so far today, by the way? What's what's the latest on the ice? Well, the ice is gone now, but I yeah. think it had to do with that just that little blast of snow, wet snow this morning, and mm. I think it probably just clung to the steel girders of the bridge, and it warmed up just enough 
and drop some of that stuff down on cars. Right. But you had three or four cars that got their uh, you know, windshields damaged, but no one was hurt. That's good news. That's good. But, That's uh, good. You know, I think there's very little they can do in being the Army Corps of Engineers to do anything about mm. the weather. Uh, right. One, one police officer told me today, he said, yeah, they... They control the bridges. They don't, they don't control the weather. <laughs> they can't uh, do that. So. <laughs> um, speaking of weather, when people watch WBZ and there is going to be storm coverage, chances are they will see you down on the South Shore <laughs> or Cape Cod. And I know that yeah. you, you love it. What is it that you love about covering these New England storms? It's nature at its best or angriest. I, I just I find it fun. I find it really you know uh to be out in the storm the same goes for a, a mountaintop in a, in a snowstorm i love to be up there skiing mm. you know when everyone else is sitting in the lodge no no i'm, I'm on the mountain i just i just find it fun it's and, dramatic I mean, just looking, it's dramatic you're looking at the power of the ocean you know it's just wow yeah uh it, at the same time you know i mean did, did you hear that Mike Townsend and I, we were editing video in the car Friday at Brant Rock. All of a sudden, I heard a loud bang, and I looked up, and there was a utility pole in half right in front of us. Wow. And but... I went, oh, my. I, I looked up, and the wires were sagging, and I looked down the street, and it was a, a domino effect. Yeah. And other wires started coming down and pulling on us. I, I got the satellite truck and got us out of there so we wouldn't get electrocuted. But, that was that was something. That was a little dicey. But yeah, but I that, love watching. That was one of the hairiest situations you've been in, probably. Is there another that stands out for you that where you thought you were a little alarmed? Yeah, the the no name storm, or it's called now the perfect storm of '91. Uh, I was down in Chatham for three days for that, mm. and it just kept getting stronger and stronger. And you know, we'd we'd go out and try to shoot, and stuff would be flying through the air branches and right right near the uh, Chatham Bar's end, <laughs> lawn furniture was flying. Wow. But that and, and what was it, Hurricane Bob mm. in 1990, uh, was it? 1991, something like that. 1991, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hurricane Bob. Oh, that was dangerous because I was in New Bedford for that. And that was, that, that again, I was just, my adrenaline was pumping. I was having fun, but it was dangerous. Yeah. I was, remember Nat Whittemore, our great photographer? Oh, yes. Nat, Nat and I were together for part of that, and uh, at one point he's shooting some video, and he's like pointed one way with the camera, and I'm watching our back, and we're down on the ground. I got a hold of his jacket so it won't blow away, and <laughs> all of a sudden the roof came off of an elementary school and just went flying right over <laughs> So I'm like, oh, my That's God. That's when you really you know? bond with your photographer. <laughs> Those are the moments that years later, you just kind of look at each other when you're walking through the newsroom and you know you're looking at a fellow pro. That, that's, that's, that's You better bond with your photographer. <laughs> They're the bread and butter, you know what I mean? Uh, they got to try to keep their cameras operating and record the stuff, and sometimes it's, it's nearly impossible. That's not easy. You know, I have to it. ask you, when you're a woman reporter in Boston, people constantly say to us, are you the next Shelby Scott? Whatever happened oh, to Shelby Scott? Do people too, ask you about Shelby Scott a lot? <laughs> oh, well, I, I don't think anyone could ever fill Shelby Scott's <laughs> shoes. But yeah, I, I get that a lot too because get I'm that. getting old. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it was about her coverage that is makes it so indelibly fixed in people's memories? Uh, you know, I think people who just relate to Shelby. Yeah. Uh, it didn't matter what age you were, but you'd see her out there and she'd be 
showing you the snow depth and rolling around in it. She'd, she'd do anything. She'd climb a snow bank. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just kind of, yeah, I, I would do that if I was Shelby. Or they could, you know, they're living vicariously through her. Yeah. But I I think she just was kind of like every everybody's sort of favorite person. Yeah. She was just, you know, she, and she too had fun in the storm. Yeah. Well, Did you sounds... know that she had, here's a little known secret about Shelby. Ooh, go ahead. She had three different colored wool caps. <laughs> Depending on the severity of the storm, <laughs> she would wear an orange one for the worst storm. Right. A blue one for a moderate storm, mm-hmm. and a green one for an everyday run of the mill snowstorm. <laughs> That's so funny. But when I... she put on the or- when she put on the orange one, that that's was when you knew. For those who knew that this is a bad storm. <laughs> this is serious. Because <laughs> um, if you don't mind my asking uh, to tell our listeners, how many years have you been at WBZ now? Uh, 37, 30, 38 this summer. Wow. And you grew up in Texas. Yes, I did. You yes, know, you I become did. such I, a I, New England fixture, but a lot of people might not realize that you got your start in Texas. Do you think you've brought some of your... Texas swagger to storm coverage in New England? <laughs> I don't know if I uh, you call it swagger. I just, I'm just me. And, you know, uh, I, I, I try to have fun during the storms. And, I mean, if it's not a life and death situation, which this past storm, there were, there were some life and death situations. There were. But uh, some of these big snowstorms, it's just a, a big pain. So I go out and have, try to have fun with it. And I'm, I don't know. It's just my attitude. I, I don't know. I got my attitude from my mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you approach everything, though, you, with fun. Yeah, she, just, she was just a lot of fun and just, you know, she was up for anything, you know, that anybody in the family suggested. Mom would say, oh, sure, let's do it. Let's go. And, and that was mom. So I, I don't know that it's swagger, Paul. I think it's just, uh, I don't know, I like to think I have fun, you know. And, and what is it that you see in, since you moved here? And obviously you love it because you've stayed for decades and you've raised oh, yeah. your family oh, yeah. here. I do love it. Yeah. What is it about New Englanders that you admire? Oh, there's too many things to mention in this podcast. But yeah. I think one is their, their determination. Mm. You know what I mean? They, they're determined to get, man, there's another storm. We're going to get through this one. You know, it's just another storm. We're going to get through it. it I think I, I love the determination of New Englanders. You know, they're not going to let anything get them down or defeat them. And uh, I really like that. And in, in, in a weird sort of way, they're a lot like Texans. They kind of want to live mm. live their lives and don't bother anybody, but I'm going to do what I need to do. And, and as long as I don't bother anybody, then the, the world will keep spinning properly. And I, I think New Englanders are a lot like Texans in that regard, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I love it here. I mean, I still go down to Texas every year and visit my old friends and family and still got a brother down there. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have a good time. We, you know, tell lies and eat a lot of Mexican food. We have a lot of fun. But, you know. Do they ever say to you, what are you doing up there in all that cold and snow? Why did oh, you they stay? Do all the time. They, they, in fact, you know, during the storms, I, my phone will just be going crazy. Then texting me saying, how are you doing? How, do you, how can you stand this? But truth be known, I I have I have a hard time standing the heat now. Mm. Like I'm gonna I go down to visit in Texas, but only in March or April or November, December. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it can get very hot. Um, you know what my favorite thing you've ever told me was about your perfect day. That that was that was a perfect day. I, I woke up in the morning at Waterville Valley on a Monday morning in the spring, and it was just perfect weather sunshine, probably about 35 degrees, 
and I just skied laps till noon because there was no one there on a Monday. I was just up, down, up, down, just skiing up, down, laps. And then I quit at noon, jumped in my truck, and had my golf clubs in the back, and I was peeing off by 2.30 at Colonial Golf Course in Linfield. <laughs> and then, after I played 18 holes of golf, I stopped at the Hilltop Steakhouse Market on the way home back to Boston and bought a steak. <laughs> <laughs> I went home to my place out the south end and had the fire going by 6.30, and I was... Seven, I was grilling a steak. Grilling a steak, and you said that that's about that's Bill Shields' perfect day. I love that story. That was a perfect day. It was (laughs) awesome. You know, I did did two great New England things in one day. You know, that's awesome. Well, thanks, Bill. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Paul. Identify problems, come up with some solutions, help people. Knowledge is a great weapon. You know what I love about Bill is that he has this sort of folksy way about him. It's probably the Texas charm that he has. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't blow things out of proportion, Mm -hmm. which is my number one peeve when it comes to storm coverage. Um, When you see a station bragging about how many boxes they have, in other words, when they put up the uh, the reporters and (laughs) we had 17 (laughs) boxes today, reporters in 17 boxes. Different places. Grow up. Right. Bill Shields, he he is a grown up. He's there. And he'll be the first one to say, yeah, yeah, people around here have seen far worse. I've seen far worse. Mm-hmm. But here's what we're seeing today. But when the sand is hitting him in the face sideways, yeah. he'll, he'll be there. He'll put on his show as well. <laughs> I love Bill Shields. Yes. And um, I just think that there's, and this is going to be totally self-indulgent, but I think that that type of reporter exists at a station like ours with mm-hmm. a long history. Reporters like Roby, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Shields, Beth Germano. Yeah. Um, but that authenticity to Bill Shields yeah. and to Roby, I just love it. Yeah. And I you love that we have people like that. You don't hang around for 37 years for nothing. Exactly. But he also um, transcends, you know, yeah. generations. He does. I think, like my own oh, friends absolutely does. love watching our channel during storms yeah. because it always looks like Bill Shields is having so much <laughs> yeah. fun he loves in the it. storm. Like some of his clips have gone completely viral yeah. because of what he does out there. He is so well, Because funny. there's, back to the millennial thing for a second. Of course. There's this attitude in which millennials only like young things yeah, they like the Kardashians true. are you kidding me Stephen Colbert is probably 60 years old he has more millennial viewers than anyone it has nothing to do with age it has to do with a, a personality a a vibe that says I'm not too big for my britches right. you know I'm fun but I'm also credible yeah Stephen Colbert is 53 what did I say he was 60? 60 oh man if we ever get him on Uh-oh. here you're gonna be in trouble I met um, him once too I did think he was 60 did, did you enjoy your first studio BZ let me tell you one more thing <laughs> this was awesome I like fun? this yeah it's if good. you guys don't want to leave I'll just I'll uh, I'll close the lights done when um, I'll close the lights off when I'm done I'll, right. I'll shut everything I um, have a lot more to say here you can switch over to live in a second Give no, that's them okay. your Twitter <laughs> address and your email. Uh, my Twitter, if you want to send me uh, hurtful and angry messages, <laughs> is uh, Paula WBZ. No, um, it's at David Wade. And you can always like my Facebook page as well. But not my private Facebook page, my personal one. I won't let you on there. <laughs> because there are too many uh, too many pictures. <laughs> and too many political comments. Um, I am at Paula Evan WBZ and PM Evan at CBS.com. And we would love to hear from you. Love to hear your suggestions. And thanks for listening to Studio WBZ. We'll see you next time. Uh, we got the name wrong again. Uh, what is this?
What is it? Studio BZ. Didn't I say that? No. It's Studio BZ? W. Studio W. You said that at the very beginning, but it That's all right. It's all the same. It's okay. Honestly, it's fine. It's a lot of a lot of talking. That was fun, David. That was awesome. I had a lot of fun. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. I hope that was okay. Good job. Thank you. Absolutely.